And welcome to Galaxy Moonbeam Nightside. We are the retro talk program for nostalgia and baby boomer stuff right here on the Galaxy Nostalgia Network. I'm Smitty. And I'm Mike. And we thank you for joining us on our program today. We're very happy to have you with us. This is an unusual program for an unusual time. And uh, we're recording this program just about the middle of April of 2020, and we're in the midst of the... uh, COVID-19 crisis, if you can call it that, that's gripping not only our country but the world. And uh, Mike and I are normally here in the studio together when we are doing these shows. But what is happening today is I'm in the studio and Mike is coming into us from his studio at his house. And we're practicing social distancing here, Mike, like uh, everyone else is doing. And uh, I think we found a kind of a workaround during this time period that we can't be physically together. We can be here together uh, virtually. Well, true, Smitty. And I think the reason we've never gotten this far as far as going mobile to each other was the fact that, as a lot of the listeners know, you and I worked together for quite a while. And we did these for a living, these webinars and these, these live events. So it wasn't so attractive as it is now. Now it's the whole thing. Exactly right. And uh, due to the fact that we have this situation going on, we decided that we would give this a try, and it seems to be working fairly well. We've run some tests, and Mike and I have talked about it, and we've gone through and studied our plans, and so we're able to bring you some new shows, and uh, this might be another alternative for us to uh, do shows, especially right now that we're not able to, to get together. So since we're talking about this present situation we thought that on this program we would talk a little bit about the fact that this is one event that's happened that is not any of us have really come across in our lifetimes. There have been other events in the history of the world, in the history of our country, where people have had to alter their lives quite a bit, daily routines. And Mike, uh, we thought we'd talk a little bit about some of the events in the past, but first of all, just uh, for the benefit of our listeners, how are you doing? How have you and uh, your wife and your family been able to uh, cope uh, with the situation these past few weeks? Well, Smitty, thanks for asking. My wife and I were uh, you know, ensconced in the house. She still works. She's a support caregiver, health care worker. So she goes to work three or four days a week. I, on the other hand, I've been staying home. It's incredible how much I've been getting done. Projects I've been wanting to do for the last 10 years are now very appealing in the morning when I get up and wonder what to do, what to do. Actually, I'm finding some items from way back that I put back in my collection that I, in fact, thought I had sold or lost or traded. So it's been, I won't say fun. It's never fun when you can't do things you want to do. And I'm, as we talked about, I'm the guy that goes out the swap meets every weekend or uh, estate sales. So I'm, I'm learning, I'm learning to compartmentalize and my wife and I've been married 44 years. So uh, there was a few rough days, a couple of days to get used to each other being home, but we're actually making the best of it and getting to know each other a little better. In fact, getting to know my family a little better. My two daughters, uh, they're married and one daughter has a couple of kids, so we share every day. And the good old telephone, the thing we talk about, full circle, here we go again, where we can't come over and see one another, but we can certainly get on the phone. And it's almost like going way back when people used to get on the phone when people lived a distance away. Well, that's good, Mike. I'm happy to hear that uh, you and yours are doing well, and we're also doing well here uh, I'm still uh, working and am able to work from home, so we're able to um, do our job remotely via computer, so that's going good. I think a lot of people are doing that as well. We do know and we're aware that a lot of people uh, have been impacted severely because of work and because of not being able to exercise their jobs the way that they normally do, and we certainly our hope and our prayer is that we return back to normal very soon and that this situation is restored so that our country is restored and we can all get back to our normal way of life. But we've been able to also hang on, and I've been also been getting a lot of things done, Mike. I've actually been working here in the studio somewhat with some long-term projects that have been hanging here that 
I haven't been able to complete, and I'm working on those now, so that's coming together. So as you said, it's not fun because there's always that cloud that seems to hang over that while I'm saying, hey, I'm getting a bunch of stuff done, it's um, just a little bit uh, uh, unnerving that to know that things outside outside the four walls of the house are, are not normal and that people are out there and some people are really suffering. So we keep that in mind and we certainly wish the best for everyone out there. Yes, we truly do. And thank you for obeying this stay inside rule because the older guys like me really thank you. <laughs> and, uh, not that it would happen to me because I have a good supply of bandanas and I don't step further out of the front door other than to pick up the mail every day, which I spray down with alcohol, 70%. But you know, Smitty, we were talking before we went to do this show about the past, some of the some of the isolation, some of the hardships that was experienced by members of our country and for that matter the world that, you know, of course we because of this coronavirus issue, we're constantly talking about the horrible epidemic of nineteen seventeen and nineteen eighteen. And it's interesting because I remember that my uncle was a year old and he caught it. And obviously he survived or he wouldn't been able to tell me about it, but he was too young to remember it. But my grandmother, his mother, remembered it quite well. And people were terror stricken. Keep in mind, there was very few households had telephones. Uh, very few people had any other way to communicate other than by writing or going to a payphone and uh, writing a letter. So news about the flu contagion didn't get around as fast like right now. I pretty much within a week, the entire country was shut down. Remains to be seen how long it will take and how successful it will be to get this country back up and running. But I think because of the precautions, my own opinion is that probably tens of thousands of lives will be and have been saved uh, as a result. But back 100 years ago, 102 years ago, uh, there was no way to spread the word. People were still eating in diners. There were no restaurants cleared out. People pretty much until the very end were people asked to quarantine. And in San Diego, I was reading some history about the quarantine in San Diego. It was very difficult because San Diego in the uh, early 1920s, late teens, was a military town. So you had military guys coming from all points of the world coming and converging on San Diego. So... Having said that, moving along as a baby boomer, I remember the isolation and the feeling of fear and the feeling of dread uh, with the Cuban Missile Crisis. It was 1962, I believe, and I know for sure, I don't believe, I'm positive, I was about nine years old, and I remember the news and how terrifying that was, and people were actually asked to stay home, to stock up on groceries. Uh, they weren't quarantined, but it was a bigger fear, the fear that... Uh, World War III, a nuclear holocaust, was just hours away in some cases. And that I remember very well, Smitty, because that was probably one of the most terrifying moments of my young life. I remember it to this day. I remember in my, my and my brother's bedroom watching the portable TV set, watching the CBS Evening News, and it just appeared that a uh, nuclear holocaust was imminent. Yeah, Mike, that event happened the year before I was born, but I've, as of course our regular listeners know, I'm quite the, try to be quite the history hound. That was a very frightening time, as you've mentioned, and people were uncertain. There was the, the belief that uh, the, the World War III was going to break out, and people were asked, as you said, to stock up and to, prepare fallout shelters and places where they could get away from the uh, the fallout because it was fully expected that there would be uh, the launching of nuclear missiles and uh, the beginning of the Third World War. Thankfully, thank God that did not happen, but I can imagine the uh, I can imagine the fear and the uncertainty uh, during that time period of 1962, uh, wondering what was going to happen and wondering if there was going to be a solution where everyone was going to survive and we were going to be able to, to go on. That must have uh, really been uh, uh, very impressive, uh, Mike, to a, to a child, uh, say, of your age. You were nine years old. I think children probably were 
impressed quite a bit with that event and probably you know you've carried it you've carried that memory with you the all all of your life well yes i did and it was a time in the 60s in the la city school district anyway and i'm sure probably for that matter most of the country uh we Baby boomers who uh, went to school in the 60s, uh, 1962, 61, 63, were introduced to civil defense shelters, which were usually in the basement of local community buildings. In my case, it was the police station in the library. But there were also uh, drop drills. And anybody who lived in the 60s and went to elementary school in the 19, early 1960s, we'll remember the drop drills as if rolling under a little tiny desk under a chair and covering your head was going to save you from nuclear annihilation, but we, I guess we thought it did. There were uh, civil defense and Red Cross rations, uh, cartons and cartons of food, survival food, gas masks, uh, radiation Geiger counters that were stockpiled. And I remember as a youngster in our community, there was a civil defense volunteer call for people who were going to work in the neighborhoods after the bomb dropped. I guess maybe they had the bomb shelters, but I remember those conversations vividly. And I remember the adults talking about, well, uh, Kennedy better get Khrushchev before Khrushchev gets Kennedy. And little did they know in their little talk around the dining room table that it didn't matter who started it. Nobody was going to win on that one. So here back, speeding it back up here to uh, the year 2020, hey, we're safe in our homes and the government, from what I understand, it sounds like they're going to pay us to stay home and behave ourselves and not cough on each other <laughs> down at the shopping bag market. So it's also a good time for reflection. It's a great time for me to work on my collection. It's interesting how prices have dropped on eBay. I wish I had some money, <laughs> but maybe I will if these government checks come in. Sure. Because uh, eBay is incredible now. There's people, sellers I know that I would click away if they ever posted anything new because they were so greedy and high-priced. Now they're getting a little humble pie, Smitty. That's so you better buy now, Smitty. Oh, boy, yeah. I better look look on there and see what else I can get, Mike, as I wait for my stimulus check to come in. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I could use some uh, stimulation to my collection. I've been selling off a lot of things, and you were with me on a couple of the last swap meets. Sure. Even thinking about the big three swap meet, that was our last big hurrah before this thing started uh, so much for swap meets for a while, Smitty. Now, I guess we got to sell our stuff now. Yeah, it sure was, Mike. For, you know, the Big Three was a yearly event we had here in San Diego for many years, and we had the last one here in February. So it'll be interesting. Hopefully they'll bring it back somewhere sometime. But for the time being, that doesn't appear to be likely. But, yeah, we're going to have to check all that stuff out on eBay, Mike. But I have had the experience of um, in in past years and past jobs that I've had, and situations where I've been able to go down into basements of some of the buildings, some of the old buildings, and even as recently as uh, 20 years ago or so, they still had remnants down there of the civil defense boxes, rations and uh, big uh, containers for water and um, cots and all kinds of crazy things down there, and it was just eerie. It was eerie to think that at one time, that was fully stocked and ready to go and ready to receive X number of people that would fit in there and that these people were going to eat and and drink and sleep and, yeah, go to the bathroom and whatever together in this, in this room, this basement or whatever it happened to be and uh, hope that when they came out, there would be something to come out too because there was no telling it could have been all been ruin and... And destruction, but uh, again, happily, thank God that never happened. And uh, but it is eerie. It was eerie for me, Mike, to go down into these uh, basements and see that, and still see the 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 boxes there with crackers and candies and all kinds of things that you know just were there from the early '60s, and they were still there. They, I'm sure, all that stuff is gone now. But it was just really eerie to see all that. And some of it can still be found in some garages because yeah. as our older generation dies off, they kept a lot of things. And these were the folks who uh, made the world and the country happen in the 60s. So uh, have you ever been inside of a bomb shelter? 
I never have, Mike. I've seen lots of pictures of one, but I never have. How about you? Well, I have, and it wasn't during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Actually, I was in the family real estate business in 1971, and about a mile away from where I grew up, there was a house that was listed for sale, and I was looking at the listing information and indicated uh, includes bomb shelter. And I went over and took a look and talk about creepy and eerie to spend, to, to be a survival of the atomic Holocaust and to be stuck there with your family, I would probably would have rather ran outside and taken a deep breath because it was small. It was almost think about two of your, your master bedroom closet and maybe two bathrooms put together, and that was the bomb shelter. And half of it was stacked with food and water. And the interesting part, uh, the gentleman who was selling the house was not the guy who put the bomb shelter in, but his name was Mr. Cullopy, the guy who sold the house. And he said he never went in there because he felt it was haunted. Wow. And he thought it would be bad energy to go in there. But I went in there, and like you said, there were boxes, and they were, uh, well, probably about 12 years old. Uh, these boxes, and they were water damaged. There were uh, flashlights, EverReady flashlights with the EverReady batteries corroded and the chrome flashlights. They were in there. There were gas masks. Uh, looked like they were empty cans of gasoline. I don't know what you would want cans of gasoline next to your garage in a deep ditch, but I'm sure somebody had that important. But think about spending a quarantine or spending time out, not in your home, Smitty, where it's nice and warm and we've got all our toys and gadgets and podcast equipment, yes. of course. <laughs> but think about being in about a, ten, a 12 by 10 foot room with two or three other members of your family with a Johnny pot, no flushing toilet, and uh, a garbage can with a lid to put what was left from the Johnny pot until you were able to surface and you got the all clear from the air raid siren that it was time to go up and take a breath. But very eerie, but bomb shelters were the rage. Uh, the people who could afford them would get them. Some of them got them out of fear, and some of them because of the coolness factor. I would still love to go look at the bomb shelters, see what they look like 50 or 55, close to 60 years later. But, Smitty, have you been ever been atop of an air raid siren? No, Tower. nope, I never I have. have. I, I think you have. Not uh, when it went off. <laughs> good, hopefully not, because you probably wouldn't be able to hear to hear me speak right now if that was the case. <laughs> In L.A. Unified School District, the last Friday of the month, at 10 o'clock a.m., uh, we knew we'd catch a break because the air raid siren at the other end of the playground would go off by, I don't know, it was law or or routine but the last friday of the month the air raid sirens we could talk about those a little there are still some left even down here in san diego i know there's quite a few left in los angeles and especially on the coastal cities because they're using them for tsunami warnings now mm -hmm, right what do you recall about air raid sirens? did you get air raid drills uh, no we didn't get air raid drills mike but when i was a little kid i i remember that every i believe it was every tuesday at noon for the longest time, there was an air raid siren that would go off. And I remember I was a little kid. I was still at home with my mom. And I would ask her mom, what's that? And she said, oh, they're just testing the siren. And um, it would happen once a week. And it happened for a long time. Probably, I want to say, uh, just a rough estimate, maybe well into 1970, 71, perhaps. Maybe that far. And then they stopped doing it. There was from where we lived down the hill, probably about... I don't know, uh, three-quarters of a mile, there was a siren down there, and they would test it once a week at noon. And um, it's kind of a scary, you know, the, those air raid sirens sound scary when you hear them because you associate them, of course, with something bad that's going to happen. But I remember that as a little kid, not fully, you know, not, of course, not comprehending what, what it meant, that it was, you know, meant for to warn of, a, of an attack. It just simply was something that would just happen once a week, and it was. And I would ask my mom, and my mom was very calm about it, and she'd say, "Oh, they're just testing the siren." So I would just go on, you know, with my playing or whatever it was. But it was, it, it, I do recall that, and that it, that it went on for a long time. I mean, for a long period of time, it would it went on. Like I said, probably well until 1970, maybe even 71. Um, 
But that was my experience, Mike, and that's a, a, rec- a very uh, early recollection from, from my childhood, remembering those, those sirens. Yeah, you know, I talked on a few episodes back, quite a few episodes back, we talked about uh, wartime, World War II. I think we did that on one of the anniversary shows we did on World War II, Smitty, and, and we talk about things that occurred in, in our country during wartime or during times of disaster and, you know, the blackouts. Because the entire West Coast, for since the Japanese had attacked Pearl Harbor from probably two weeks after that, right on through almost to the end of the war, the West Coast was subject to nightly blackouts. And blackouts, folks, for you younger folks, because I got this firsthand from my grandfather because he was an air raid warden. I'll talk about that in a minute, but the blackouts, uh, you could be getting off a streetcar and waiting for another streetcar and they call a blackout and you're going to have to find your way home. And even my mother told me how black Los Angeles would be because you couldn't even have a, a weak light bulb lamp on in your house. Uh, you'd have the police there or the area warden and you could go to jail, but imagine an entire coastline, the East coast, we could talk about the power outage there in 1964, but in world war II, it was almost subject to nightly, and air raid sirens would come on in the entire West Coast, from Washington State all the way down San Francisco, all the way to San Diego to the border, would go black. And imagine how eerie that would feel. Absolutely, Mike. And then also in conjunction with that, uh, as you might recall, all the radio stations were forced to go off the air, and that was so that they could not home in on... Uh, a powerful signal, say like KFI in Los Angeles or KPO in San Francisco, uh, so that the the bombers could not focus in on that and use that as a beam, much as they had done in Hawaii in Pearl Harbor. That's how they got their bearings, by tuning in the station from Hawaii. Absolutely. That's right. That's what happened. And it would be lights out, radios out. There were very few TVs, and they were still experimental in the World War II years. But imagine not being able to hear what was going on on the radio if, in fact, it was an attack because 90, 99.9% of the time there was no threat. I think the Japanese bombed an oil field in Oregon, and that was the entire attack on their part in World War II of the West Coast. But still, my mom with her four brothers, they would cower, and the, the entire house was dark, and they would shake and shiver and wonder if this was going to be it. You know, they they listened my uncles would stick their heads out the door and listen to see if they heard air- aircraft approaching. So that's probably a terrifying time. I think it was, Mike. And I think the darkness and then the fact that, uh, you know, you had the blackout curtains, as you mentioned, and perhaps maybe inside you had one little tiny light and that you, you know, uh, needed to make sure that no light was shining outside your house or else, as you said, you'd be subject to be arrested or subject to a heavy fine. I suppose that those people who lived during that event, much as people like you who lived through the Cuban Missile Crisis and and people who have lived in other uh, times that uh, of trial, maybe like we're living now, we sometimes you know might think, well, you know, are we ever going to get out of this? And the answer is yes. You know, we do. We do. The the country moves forward, and and these events, these temporal events, end. And uh, but nevertheless, at that moment, it, it's frightening, and it is a, a radical departure from normal life, and it's something that uh, you know is totally unexpected. So true, and who knew two, three months ago, or around the holidays, that we would be approaching the the um, Easter holidays and the Passover holidays, uh, confined to our homes, not necessarily confined, but strongly admonished. Mm-hmm. to remain at home. I've only been out once. I've been out of the house, well, twice in the past three weeks, just to check the P.O. box, and I did one shopping run. But to see your neighborhood streets empty and to see people and not see kids running around and playing like you're used to seeing, it is a shock. It's an emotional shock. It, it's a cultural shock because, hey, we're America, and we're Americans, and we're not supposed to be told what to do, and we're certainly not supposed to be told when when we can take our kids to the park. So it, it is a shock. It, it is an, it's an upheaval, but we do, we do pray, and we do ask the listeners who pray to pray 
for those people who are suffering physically or emotionally or financially through this because we will come out of it. It will eventually stop. And uh, we're going to we're going to all stand tall when it's done. Absolutely, Mike. We're going to all move past this. And and our purpose today on our doing our program was just simply to look back upon just some of these events and perhaps these events. We look back on them and we think, well, it was a very dark time and it was a very frightening time. But yet the country, the people pulled together and they moved forward and they survived as as we're going to move forward. And even other events, Mike, also that we that you and I talked before we went to air, other events such as perhaps uh, the the time during the assassination of President Kennedy, nine one one nine eleven, when that happened. These are events that uh, there were, of course, no quarantines, no demands to stay at home, but it also upset the general theme of our lives. Uh, during the JFK assassination, of course, people didn't know what was going to happen, and they were at home. You remember that, obviously. You remember the the Cuban Missile Crisis, but uh, people were home, and they were watching the coverage of the, fun- the funeral coverage and the news that was coming in. There was uncertainty, but people stayed close to home. Uh, 9-11, I remember that quite well, that also, again, uh, the uncertainty, not knowing what was going to happen, and people maybe stayed close to home. And I do remember stores and shopping centers and things closing, uh, restaurants closing early, businesses closing early, because the general mood was that people didn't want to be out, and they kind of wanted to be home and wanted to uh, be with their loved ones and gather news and information. And I think... uh, these these events, Mike, as they've come down, uh, perhaps uh, maybe once, maybe possibly twice a generation, but an event such as what we're going through now is probably a once in a once in a century type of an event. You mentioned the Spanish flu of 1917-18, and uh, here we are, just a little over a hundred years later, with an event that is somewhat similar to that, where people are having to keep to themselves and stay at home and avoid contact with others. So true, Smitty. And, you know, the reality is that we don't have a big choice in what we're going to do. We can you know, obey, obey the rules and follow and try not to get sick and do what we're supposed to and try not to get somebody else, some innocent party sick, or we can go do it our way. But that's not what most Americans do. You know, we bicker and fight and argue and get in political battles and unfriend half the people on Facebook because they offended us if they didn't unfriend us first. And uh, but we always come together. And I remember in nine eleven, both sides of the aisle came, you know, saying the Star Spangled Banner all together in unison. Everybody worked together, and that's what we do. Hey, I have one question from a viewer. Yes. Are we going to take a break on this show? Or are we going to go straight through? We're going to go straight through. Okay. The question, because it's very timely, our talk about civil defense and talk about the Cuban Missile Scare and the crisis and things of the sixties. Um, we have a listener, his name totally evades me right now. However, it was a great question because it's right in the wheelhouse of what we're talking about today and what we like to talk about in past episodes. He had a radio that is, that was his grandmother's, a desktop radio, and he had her transistor radio. And both of them had little circles with diamonds on either side of the dial or you dial in the radio mm-hmm. and he wanted to know what those stood for the, and none other in the world than my famous partner, Gilbert Smitty Smith can answer with the little circles with the white diamonds on the ends of the dial spectrum. What that, what did they do and what did they mean? Oh boy. That's a good, that's a great question. Well, those two little circles with the little diamonds in them were on the AM radio dial. And the one was located at 640 kilohertz or kilocycles as it was back then. The other one was at uh, 1240 kilocycles. And what that was, was that that was the the two spots on the radio dial for Conelrad, control of electromagnetic radiation. And what that was, was that in the event of an air raid, all the stations in the country were to go off the air and they were going to, they would all move their frequencies to either to 640 or 1240 on the dial. So if you received... Uh, you heard the siren going off. Your local radio station would go off the air. You'd move your dial over to 640 or 1240. And there was already a, a pre-programmed sequence in which all your local stations would come on 
for a minute and then go off. And then another station in another area would come on for a minute and then go off. And what it was was this, this is how they were able to, how they were going to be able to, to maintain, uh, giving information to the public. But yet going back to what we talked about in Pearl Harbor, they did not want to have one radio station stay on so that a, an enemy bomber could home in on that station. So they could home in, let's say on KFI in Los Angeles or KOGO in San Diego or uh, KCBS in San Francisco. They could, if that station were to stay on, they could home in on that frequency and, and go right to that city. What this did is this kept moving the signal around the different cities that would give you the, the coverage. Some would be, signals would be stronger in some stations than others, obviously, but this would allow the information to continue to be able to give it out to, to the public, yet evading that homing in signal that uh, would help the bombers out. And it was a system that was in place, and it was done away with, Mike, when the emergency broadcast system came into being. That took over from that. Um, there was a famous um, Conrad test, I believe, in the late 50s where they actually did that. Actually, television and FM stations would go off the air, too. All that would stay on would be the AM stations in this sequence where they would only be on just short enough time to give a burst of information, then they would go off the air. Another station would take over and come on for a minute, and it was either at 640 or 1240 on the dial, and that's what that was. So was was Conrad part of civil defense, or was it FCC? Uh, they, well, it was both, Mike. It was, it was definitely part of civil defense, but it was something that the Federal Communications Commission, the FCC, also had to do involved with in allowing these stations to change frequency. For example, you might have a station whose normal frequency would be 900 or maybe 880 or 920. They would move their frequency down to 640 or up to 1240, depending on the geographical needs of the area. You had to have enough stations that would go off the air and come on and, and uh, you know, so that the people in a given area could get the information. So it was, it was involved both civil defense and the FCC. Okay, and the, the guy who had, Nathan, Nathan Matrix, I don't think that's his last name, but his screen name or his uh, email is Nathan Matrix. So, Nathan, there's your answer. Uh, I knew about Conrad, but that's very informative, Smitty. I appreciate that. Now, on, on any AM radio, say, produced sometime where in the mid-50s until sometime in the mid-70s that you will see those markings on the on the face dial? Yeah, Mike, I think, I'm not sure on the dates. I believe it's from the later 50s through the late 60s or something. It, it, it was by law. Those two marks, those two civil defense marks were required. Uh, and, I, and I'm sorry, I don't have the exact dates. Uh, that information is online. In fact, in the subsequent show, we'll, we'll talk about that some more. But that was required by law. The, the dial, and in fact, even on car radios also, you had that. So radios made during, the, during that uh, time period, AM radios, by law had to have those two designations so people could tune to them right away. Oh, Smitty, we're going to start a scavenger hunt. <laughs> after after this show, the scavenger hunt will be everybody has a hot rod, an old car, or an old radio, or an old transistor radio, for that matter, are going to run out and look at the tuning dial face. Yes, <laughs> that's right. what we're talking about. That's right. That's right. And we'll get the exact dates on that, and we'll we'll talk about that on a subsequent show, because I I, I believe it was, yeah, mid to, mid to later 50s and probably well into the late 60s that they had that. Okay, I've, there's another question. Shall we take it? Sure, we can take it, yeah. That's what's nice about getting out there where we should have been as far as our podcasts. We're in most of the directories now. We're trying to get in Google Podcasts, but yeah. we're starting to add more listeners, and we appreciate all you listeners of all ages. Yes, it's wonderful to have new listeners. Uh, this one we spoke uh, several, several, I don't know, after 250 shows almost. I can't tell when I say on a previous show because it could have been one 10 years ago. But we talked about shortwave, and we talked about collecting radios, certain radios. I have a loving, avid listener who is asking, when I, when I was growing up, my dad had a shortwave radio. I think it was a transoceanic, whatever. But on a regular day, we couldn't get stations, but around nighttime... Or when the sun went down, we could get stations from all over the world. How could that be? These were stations that were thousands of miles away, and we were we were sitting at my dinette set. 
So can you explain the spectrum and the wonders of shortwave, Smitty? Yeah, shortwave. What a fantastic. Or medium wave. Yeah, medium yeah, wave. yeah, well, medium wave, uh, AM. Oh, part of the question, I didn't mean to interrupt, but also, and by the way, there's SW1, SW2. What does MW mean in LW? <laughs> I'm going to learn something from my good buddy Smitty here in about a few minutes. I've always wondered, and I've never asked. Yeah, well, that SW, of course, is shortwave. Most of those radios had shortwave 1, shortwave 2. MW was medium wave, which is actually AM, which is uh, AM, AM broadcast, like we uh, pick up today. And LW is long wave, which is not used in this country, but it's used in some countries in Europe. It's just another frequency band where radio stations are located. And, uh, okay, and yeah. that, now that would, long wave would be a, something outside of the U.S. then, but it comes, it came packaged with the radios. Yeah. And even if you bought the radio in the U.S., you could still get long wave if there was long wave or if you moved to to Belgium. Exactly. I think and I think it was Belgium, Luxembourg, some of those countries yes. in Europe were using long wave for their broadcast service. And yeah, and I I've had radios before that have had long wave and uh I could pick up ciphers and codes and things but I've never picked up any 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 voice communication. So that would have been probably something more in Europe that you would have picked up. But getting back to the distance, um, uh, to receiving distance, it has to do with the ionosphere, which surrounds the Earth. Now, in the daytime when the sun is out, the sun generates a lot of interference in the ionosphere. Um, it blanks out a lot of signals, uh, it causes signals to only travel short distances. As you start to get into the evening hours, the sun goes down, the ionosphere comes alive, and it becomes basically a reflective surface for radio signals. So you could have a radio station thousands of miles away. You could have it in another country, another continent. And when the, when it's nighttime, that signal can travel, and it'll bounce off the ionosphere and come down thousands and thousands and thousands of miles away from where it originated. And that's why you can pick up distance at night. Same thing with AM. You know, if you have an, uh, an AM radio, you tune it at night, you can pick up stations from other states. The same thing, the same, the same process. It has to do with the fact that the sun affects the ionosphere during the daytime at night. The ionosphere is very quiet. It settles down. There's no interference. And that allows these signals to bounce from different locations around the Earth. It could be from the next state or it could be from another country, from another continent. And that's why you can pick up more distance signals at night than you can in the daytime. Well, that's a great answer because I thought I knew the answer, but you added to it. And that, you know, we talk about shortwave and we talk about things we like to do when we were teenagers, adolescents, and probably one of, uh, among my favorite memories of being 12, 13 years old was my first shortwave radio, and it was Army Surplus. My uncle was a scrounger. He, 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 was, a junk, he was a junk tracker. He would go to thrift stores and junk shops, and he found this radio, and it was a mess. Somebody had taken house paint, yellow house paint, and painted the cabinet. And didn't do a very good job of it. There were drips and things. And probably this paint job was done probably sometime before I was born in 1953. Dirty, dusty, but it worked. And it was just such an adventure, such a mesmerizing uh, a mystery that there were these faraway stations. And I had to use headphones. There was no speaker. And he let, he wanted to sell it to me for $5, which I thought was a deal. Yeah. but. When I went to ask my dad for the $5, and to which his response was, what do you need it for? Because most boys, 12 years old, take their $5, want to go to the movies or go buy a used bicycle or buy gum. Not me. I'm going to buy an old World War II vintage shortwave radio that's been painted to look like a Dutch farmhouse. <laughs> but it did work. And just that's. Uh, 11, 12 years old, and I rigged an antenna. Somehow it worked and listened in on those stations. Just the Morse code was so intriguing, Smitty. And the, uh, I, what do they call them, the quacky birds? It sounds like a, a bird chirp, the chirps. Yeah. Mean, my brothers and I were convinced, my brothers and cousins and I were convinced that those were communist agents off the coast of Southern California <laughs> uh, using some type of special code to uh to coordinate their invasion yeah. of Los Angeles and West Hollywood. Yeah, it's funny. A lot of the signals, I used to listen to a lot of shortwave when I was a kid. 
And the uh, same thing with you, Mike, had a succession of uh, of radios, including a, a Zenith Transoceanic, and you'd hear something strange on the radio, and I would tell my dad, those have to be the communists on the air. <laughs> well, well, you know, in our time, I, I have a few years on you, but you were in that wheelhouse of, of window of years. Yeah. Everything you... Everything that went wrong, from the weather to a bad crop in Nebraska, the communists got the blame. Yeah. Because they were trying to do us in because we were so successful. And my dad and my uncle weren't going to let them because veterans were, you know, they all had weapons that they smuggled back from Europe and and, uh, the South Pacific. But everyone was convinced. Uh, Just like it's the first time I've heard you say that you thought those were communist agents. Yeah. Yeah. And you and I have talked. Exactly. Yeah. You and I have talked about this a lot, but yeah, that's, I used to ask my dad, do you think those are the communists? You know, and you'd hear something strange and, but shortwave listening, Mike was, was wonderful. I listened to a lot of shortwave in the later seventies and, there's not that much now because many of the countries have moved just on to having their services online. Uh, there was amazing what you could hear at night. And I hope that, uh, I hope some of our listeners, if any of our listeners did shortwave listening during that era, write in and tell us about that because it was fascinating. And for a kid like me, I was uh, 13, 14, 15, 16 years old. It was fascinating to sit there at night at my kitchen table and slowly tune that dial and pick up station after station after station and then waiting for the station identification to find out where they were coming from. And I go, wow, that was South Africa or that was uh, Ecuador or that was Cuba or that was that was Italy or, that, or, or Radio Moscow, the communists. You know, uh, it was it was fascinating. It was really, really a lot of fun. Was it exciting to you as well when you dial in and suddenly you'd pick up, as you know, probably the premier, the top station on in the shortwave world, especially for a young teenager, was Voice of America. Oh, sure. Wasn't it interesting when they'd switch bands or they'd switch they'd fr- switch frequencies or dial and you'd find them somewhere and Voice of America in this picture, this guy in a Hawaiian shirt, and he's got an RC an, RC, an old RCA microphone yeah. a 74 and it's hot and he's probably outside of buenos aires somewhere yeah. at voice of america and there's palm trees and he's talking to the peoples of the world who are enslaved by the evil communism that's right yeah the voice of america was real interesting because i remember at night mike when i was getting ready to go to bed it'd be 10 o'clock at night maybe 11 o'clock at night there would be a program that would come on that I would actually listen to. It was called the VOA, the Voice of America, the VOA Breakfast Show. And it was a program that was beamed to Africa because it was morning in Africa. So they were playing American music and it'd be like a, like a DJ show, but it was, but it was uh, uh, oriented toward listeners in Africa and I guess uh, Western Europe as well. And, um, I remember around the time of the Bicentennial, they were doing a a series about American history, and they were transmitting that on the Voice of America. The other interesting thing, the other anecdote about the the Voice of America is that they would uh, do a news broadcast that I I would receive here in the afternoons, and the announcer would speak very slowly as he read the news, sort of at this speed. And I asked somebody about that one time, and they said that's for people that are learning English or English is a second language so they can understand the news better. It wasn't a fast-talking individual. It was very, very slow. I found that to be fascinating. What was your view on Armed Forces Radio? I know that we've talked about that, and that's it strikes a, a, a funny a funny humor bone when I think of it because I always think of Good Morning Vietnam, but mm-hmm. that was more ac- – that was more real than you would imagine, folks, uh, because there was an Adrian Cronauer who was played by Robin Williams, and he was a little off the wall. But typically, uh, Armed Forces Radio and <laughs> Armed Forces Radio, I, it would be one of these all Ray Conniff singers all weekend long here on Armed Forces Radio and Radio Saigon. Mm-hmm. As an 18-year-old, out in the humps, out in the boonies, scared to death, uh, afraid that today was going to be your day. The last thing you wanted to hear on your little transistor radio that either picked up Vietnamese or Voice of America or Armed Forces Radio, the last thing you wanted to think about was the Ray Conniff singers 
all weekend long. <laughs> I guess what was, your, what was your favorite? What was your favorite Armed Forces? <laughs> Armed Forces Radio. I we kind of mimic some of these guys because we highly respect them. But yeah. wasn't it interesting? Some of the stuff they'd come up with. It was, and it was all government filtered. You know, there yeah. was a sausage machine and. And we were getting the sausage on whatever the <laughs> government wanted to tell us through the armed forces. Sure. Yeah, it was um, sort of to bring a little bit of home to these uh, servicemen that were either on a Navy ship or out on fighting somewhere, Vietnam or other locations around the world. And uh, uh, bringing American music, you know, whether it be stuff like Ray Conniff or, you know, more modern music, more rock, rock and roll music or something, just to sort of give them a touch of of home. I remember hearing baseball games on Armed Forces Radio, football games that were going on that were being transmitted to uh, servicemen overseas. And it was uh it was uh, quite a valuable uh service for the um, for the men the men and women that were fighting overseas because uh, this allowed them to have a little bit of uh, a little touch of home, you know, so they were thinking, "Wow, my favorite team is playing today." And lo and behold, Armed Forces Radio would have that they would uh, take the feed from uh, one of the American networks or uh, uh, one of their uh, their network, you know, with announcers or whatnot, and they would, but they would cut the commercials out. You would not hear the commercials overseas, you know. So they would, they were taking a program from here. They'd cut the commercials out, or they would they would insert their own public service ads during the time that the commercials were running. Those I remember hearing that they used to be on all over the dial, all over the shortwave dial. You know, this is the, the, the American Forces Radio Network. And it was, I think it was Armed Forces Radio Network. Then it changed to American Forces Radio Network. Yeah, America. Yeah, yeah. and later used they, Yeah, ar- the word armed became politically incorrect. Yeah. It was armed but, during World War II. And then later yes. on, I believe in the 60s, probably became American. Uh, it probably would have been 70s. 70s, maybe? Okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah, because it was right when Nixon... Ended the draft, ah, thank okay. goodness, yeah. because I was number 16 uh. and already processed, already looking forward to getting off the bus and following those yellow footsteps into oblivion. Oh, my gosh, Mike. I'm glad but here I am in oblivion, California, and <laughs> this has been kind of fun, Smitty. It turned out a little better than I thought. Yeah, Mike, as far as uh, technically, I think this worked out very well, and it's going to allow us to... Uh, do a very short turnaround on this show because it's very timely. So we're going to turn it around and uh, people will be hearing it shortly after we fin- finish with this program. And it's been fun to talk about radio and shortwave and some of the memories. And, and folks, I think uh, if we want to leave you with one thought is that we will persevere. We're going to get past this as, as the country has been past other situations and we're going to move on and we're going to be able to return to our normal way of life. And uh, as Mike said earlier, those of you who pray, pray for our nation, for our world, for the people that have been impacted by this, and certainly for our leaders, that they are able to act accordingly during this time period. But Mike, this has been the most unusual show, but I think uh, this sort of also opens up the possibility of you and I doing more shows like this that uh, uh, you know we'll be able to, uh, maybe even at a moment's notice, get together and record a, a program from your studio and from the Galaxy Studios here. Yeah, we can do that. It's like I said earlier in the show, it's stuff that we've done for a, a living for yeah. years. I met up with you in 2005. Yeah. About that time, the public agency we you still work for and that I used to work for uh, got into the whole webinar business. And I thought, you know what? The future is going to be webinars and podcasts. Yeah. I've always been able to look into the future, but I've never been able to afford the ride. <laughs> but now just about all the information I'm getting is on podcasts or webinars. And I produce webinars for several other customers uh, here in my business. But it's just amazing how far technology has come. I'm watching the nightly news, especially in the past few weeks. There's not much else to do. And I'm seeing I'm seeing concerts and musical groups and high school kids all coming from different places, different part, different homes, different businesses, different parts of the country. And there's 30 of them and they're all putting a performance together and they're in sync and they harmonize and they sound great. It's like you're sitting at Carnegie Hall. So that that's technology, folks. We spent a little time talking at the, well, quite a bit, almost half the end of the show talking about radio and shortwave and uh, air raid sirens, because these are the kind of things that we had to do when we had 
Well, if you were out for two weeks from school and you had the mumps, you really had the TV and you had the radio. You had no Internet. You had no Netflix. You had no Prime Video. You had no video, much less Prime. Uh, you had the tabletop radio and a little black and white TV set if you were lucky enough to get one in your bedroom, and that was about it. I know very well because in 1966 I was out for three weeks with the mumps. Mm. So I know what it was like to be cooped up for three weeks anyway. Sure. I don't know how I can handle three months. Hopefully it won't be three months, Mike. But, you know, thanks again to technology, we can remain informed and we can remain in contact with our loved ones as well. True, Smitty. And, again, we really appreciate bringing this show to you folks today. Uh, We are Galaxy Moonbeam Night Sight. We are located in Southern California in the beautiful San Diego County. We've been at this for 10 years, 10 years with very close to 250 shows. We love our listeners. We love the feedback. We love our Facebook friends. That's the best way to communicate with us is Galaxy Moonbeam Night Sight. Just type it into Facebook and come on in and enjoy the party. You can catch our website. We have a gentleman by the name of George Halalakos. He's an Irish guy. No, wait. He's like (laughs) me. He's Greek and Irish. No, he's just Greek, not Irish. Anyway, he's a good buddy and a, one of the original, one of the OG Galaxy good guys. Uh, he posts a monthly uh, blog entry. It has to do with the history, American pop history, aeronautics, the space age, and quite a few things. So we're starting to get a little more active with our website, which is galaxymoonbeamnightsite.com. Gmail, galaxymoonbeamnightsite at gmail.com is the way to email us. But again, We'd rather hear from you on Facebook because then we can all share the memories, all share the ideas, and hopefully all share the fun. In the meantime, I'm Mike. I'm Smitty. And you've been listening to Galaxy Moonbeam Night Sight on the Galaxy Nostalgia Network. This is the Galaxy Nostalgia Network.